This is Unaided, the brand building podcast brought to you by Leakside, a team snap company. Get ready to learn about brand marketing strategy from the experts. Here's your host, Evan Brandoff. Hello, and welcome to the Windgrin podcast. Today, we welcome Tom Ferguson onto the show. Tom is the founder and CEO of Rise Chicken and Biscuits, which has 16 stores across seven states. Tom has an extremely interesting and inspiring story, and we are excited to share more with you today. We are here with Tom Ferguson. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, we are thrilled. And are those birds behind you? They are birds. I'm pretty into bird watching, as we call it these days, birding. Yes, I love it. Birding, is that the technical term for bird watching? Yeah, that's the technical term these days. Tell us more. How did you get into birding? Well, I was, I had come off a couple of nervous breakdowns and I finally decided to go to my doctor and asked him for a pill. So I didn't feel this way anymore. And he said, eh, you're not really an addict. You're not really bipolar. You need a hobby. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, and I've been thinking for some reason about bird watching when I got older. And so he kind of laughed. Said, do you think you can slow down enough to watch birds? And I took it as a challenge. I was December 17, 2018. That night, I went and joined three bird clubs, bought all the gear I needed, signed up for a three-day trip out to the Outer Banks, and was on my way. And really, I love it. It's great. It's really given me balance in my life that I didn't have before. I was just a workaholic in every way you can look at it. It's all I thought about. And picking up this new hobby slowed me down. I learned new things. I learned what it was like to learn again from scratch. So it made me more em- empathetic for my employees. It made me um, a better boss by splitting that time where I thought I had to put everything into what I did. I didn't realize that by finding some balance, I became better at what I did. That's amazing. What's the rarest bird that you've seen? I think the rarest bird I've seen is a black bee vireo, which is a very simple looking bird, but I saw it down in Miami early. And I haven't really met many other people who've seen it. I was with a guide and he took me to it. Yeah, kind of cool. Yeah. Seen a few, few that are rare, but that's, I think that's the rarest. Growing up, I begged my parents for a dog. They got me a dog, but that only lasted about one week. My mom couldn't take it. So instead, I got a pet parakeet. So I ended up loving Stripey, our pet parakeet. So I'm very into birds as well. That, that's really interesting. I want to get more into your incredible career and some of the challenges that you spoke to that you've had to deal with as well. But first, I want to rewind, go back a few years. And of course, now you're the founder and CEO of Rise Chicken and Biscuits, and you've had an incredible career and, and journey leading up to Rise. But let's go back to high school, Tom. What was high school, Tom, like? When I was in second grade, I was put back into first grade. And it was fairly traumatic. At the time, I think it's kind of a base of who kind of built me at seven years old, where I didn't want to feel that way anymore. And I had a lot of insecurities still do throughout my life. So what I wanted to do is be accepted in a group. And so I was a person that was friends to a lot of people. I tried really hard at things that were visual. I didn't. School was really difficult for me. So I did really well in football. I was an all-district, undersized offensive lineman and Texas 5A football. Wow. 
I did well there, but at school I had to go to summer school to graduate. So when that was over, I joined the military and became an airborne ranger. Military career was pretty easy for me as well. It was a lot of hands-on stuff. And that's kind of where I flourished, was doing things I could see and feel and do. So that set up into parlayed me into cooking, which is also kind of the same way. It's hands-on seeing lots of gratification, instant rewards every five minutes you put on a plate. So these things from being in second grade, being put back, that insecurity and that wanting to be accepted mm -hmm. was where I really pushed. And even in businesses, I've started three that all been successful, was for other people to accept me. Am I the man now? That's what I tell my wife after we started Rise. Now they'll know I'm the man. She's like, no, they know you're the man. You can stop that. But I can't stop it. It's what feeds me. That's interesting. So, okay, you joined the army. And then, as you said, you ended up becoming a chef. How did that happen? Yeah, I took an aptitude test when I was getting ready to get out of the army. I had a reenlistment package for special forces for radio. And um, so I didn't want to go. I didn't want to stay in. So I took a test. What color is your parachute? Mm -hmm. And number one on it was to be a politician. Number two was to be a chef. Mm. I'm like, okay, chef, I like cooking for friends and throwing parties. I did that a lot in high school. So when I got out, I hit the road running. I went to Austin, Texas. and was in a small culinary program there, but I moved to DC with my chef. I moved back to Austin. Then I went to the Culinary Institute in New York, did my internship in Dallas where I met my wife, went back to New York, finished school, moved to Los Angeles to learn about catering. After the riots, Rodney King writes, we moved to North Carolina. Then we moved back to Dallas and back to North Carolina, then to Asheville, Seattle, and back to North Carolina. Did you become a Longhorns fan during that journey? Yeah, I grew up a Longhorns fan. Yeah, absolutely. That's my alma mater. Uh, yeah, well, I'm sorry about this past week. Uh, that was brutal, to, to put it all in one word. <laughs> yeah, my uh, daughter's going to University of Arizona, and... They haven't won a football game since October 5th, 2019. So that's kind of brutal. I wear that Arizona hat everywhere right now. But they have the longest losing streak in football. Wow. But at least there's low expectations every season. That's the worst part about being a Longhorn fan. And for everyone listening, this past weekend, Texas played Oklahoma in the Red River rivalry. Texas was up. I want to say four touchdowns at halftime and ended up blowing the lead and losing the game. So quite painful, but unfortunately, that's the story of being a Longhorns fan the past decade. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, Tom, I think it's interesting and amazing that you're open and honest about the insecurities that you have. We all have insecurities, and it seems that you've done a really good job of being self-aware about what your insecurities are and have turned that into what fuels you and have ultimately built superpowers that have come from those insecurities. Can you speak a little bit more to how you were able to turn something that in second grade might have been a weakness per se, and instead have empowered you for those to be your superpowers? Yeah. I've always said, don't underestimate the easily underestimated. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to anybody but me. Because I think I'm underestimated a lot. I'm dyslexic, but didn't know it until I was older. Mm -hmm which helped things make a lot more sense on the trajectory of my life. I didn't think a whole lot about it, really, 
about the insecurity and the negative aspects of it until I went to rehab. So when I had first breakdown, things went pretty crazy. I was having panic attacks. I didn't understand what they were. When was this, Tom, that you went to rehab? This is four years ago, I believe. My plate was full. I knew that Rise had some problems that need to be fixed. I made a whole bunch of money, was standing on the shoulders of my ego, saw the problems, didn't know how to fix them, and ran from it and ran into drugs and just getting away. I didn't know how to handle it. And then knew enough that it had gotten bad enough for me to go to rehab. And so I went away for three months in California. And it was the first time in my life I'd ever had a period of time just to reflect on me and really learn some tools that could help me. It wasn't a 12-step program. It was a pretty hippie, hippie program. You know, crystals, a bunch of yoga, sweat lodges, lots of group therapy. And everybody was so good to me before I went. Partners, investors, and everybody had about $20 million invested in me. And it's not the greatest thing when the CEO goes to rehab. You worry about your investment. But they were really good to me. And I learned these things that were really important that I had that time to go through it. So when I was in rehab, I wrote a cultural manifesto about how I wanted the culture of my company to be. Mm. And said, I have to give back what I got from others, just that understanding and love that was there. And I somewhat done this. I'd been a firm but fair boss my whole life, believe, taking care of people. Uh, I really cared about the people who cooked, who were in the trenches, because as you know from my story moving around, I was in the trenches for a long time. So when I got out of rehab, I had to start fixing the company, breaking it down and building it back up. But I also went and would meet with different employees at different stores, right? 30 minutes each and then 30 minutes with the manager, telling my story. And when I would share my story, you see their shoulders relax and then they would want to share theirs. And what happened is a lot of these people were sharing things that they never shared with anybody before, but they never had anybody else share their story with them. And it's so powerful when you put yourself in a vulnerable situation to share something without worrying about what the ramifications of somebody having that knowledge of your shame just doesn't matter. You share it, they relax, they do. 50% of those meetings were tears from me, them, or both of us. It was powerful. So that type of leadership for our culture is what I'm trying to base it on. At the beginning, we have four different groups of people. We have people who don't like the job, so they should move on better for them. People who like just to do one specific thing, people who want to move up in the company, and then people who are just a stopping point where they figure out where they want to go or what they're doing. And we like to help them and encourage them to figure out where they're going and, and hold them accountable to it. Too. So we want to be a place that if you want to be in for long haul, we have plenty of opportunities. If you're a stopping point, we want to help you get where you want to go. That's amazing. And how big was Rise at this point? How many stores were there? Probably pretty close to what we have now. We've opened 25 stores, but we closed nine okay. back in the day. So it was just too inconsistent, too big of staffs, no ROI coming back. I mean, it was a big task to fix this company, but it's fixed now and it's doing really well now. There's nothing to hide in this rocket. So it was worth it, but I wish that on nobody to have to take, like for me, 
everything I'd made my whole life cooking had been from scratch. And that was kind of my identity as a chef. And with Rise, the donuts weren't working. And I had to take the emphasis off the donut and put it all on the biscuits and then bring in a product to use just for a few donuts to satisfy those people. But people were still looking at me like I was trying to be a donut person. Hmm. I'm not as integrity as chef. I am a biscuit, biscuit guy. And that was hard because people, especially with social media and all the shit, the shit talking and people bitching about this or that. And you're like, hmm, <laughs> that's not what we are anymore. Speaking of being a biscuits guy, Rise is notorious for having incredible biscuits. But in the early days of Rise, I believe it was Rise, something else you became notorious for was accepting Bitcoin. Yes. We were the first retail place in North Carolina to take Bitcoin. We were really early on in that. That had to be 2014, 2015. Bitcoin was about $500. I hate banks. I've only <laughs> needed a bank once in my life and they weren't there for me. So I'm like, go to hell. <laughs> so it's more of a revolutionary thought, way to fight the power, kind of a punk rocker back in my day anyway. So I don't know how much it's doing for that, but at least that was my stance. Did anyone purchase? Yeah, we did. At that point, we were taking it through Coinbase. So we had a separate little iPad for that, but then we moved away from Square to Revel and Revel doesn't facilitate those sales. So we only did it for about a year and a half. We moved to the new POS system. So now they just make it difficult. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't a whole lot, but it got people talking about it. It started interest, and that was what I wanted to do anyways. You would take the Bitcoin and then cash out that night for the amount it was worth. Interesting. So are there any stories like of Domino's where someone, looking back on it, spent $9 million on a pizza? We didn't have anything like that because we cashed them out every day. But I bought three Bitcoin back then for 500 each. And then I email changed, lost password, and they were unobtainable for me for about three years. But when I finally got it cashed out, it was over 10000 each. Wow. Well done. Foolishly, I owned two Bitcoin at $400 each. It was another Texas OU football game that I foolishly bet on my Longhorns. <laughs> Those two Bitcoin, lost them for $400 each, and the person I lost the bet to still holds them today. So oh. that was not good. So you now have 16 restaurants in seven states, which is incredible. Congratulations. How did it end up happening that it's 16 restaurants across seven states? And what was the strategy behind being in seven states versus being in one specific area? There's not really a strategy behind that. It has to do with franchisees that are interested. Okay. So when the franchisees come and want a certain territory, we vet them, they're vetting us, and then we're trying a new area. Back in the day, we weren't very sophisticated in finding locations. It was all like income of the people who lived in the area, density of the people who live there, daytime population. Now it's a lot more sophisticated. We know the Mosaic profiles of our customers, which I don't know if you know Mosaics, but there's like 72 profiles. We build that off the addresses that we have for our customers and it follows their credit card spending to their address. And then it makes up a profile. And then we take all our addresses and make it into the RISE profile and layer that into a heat map. So it shows us the density where our customers live. So we can kind of pick and go where they're at. 
That's very interesting. How are you able to use Mosaic in order to build your marketing strategy? We're not using it for marketing, but it can be used in marketing. What we're doing for marketing is back in the day, you would try everything. You try billboards, radio, try whatever. But when you're smaller, it doesn't do much good for you. Too specific. What we do, YouTube ads, Google ads, probably about three campaigns a year. What's the most efficient is direct emails to our customers that we have, telling them about things and they pass it along. But we're getting ready to kick off text messaging marketing too, which is pretty elaborate now on the information that they pull in. And it will all kind of be combined, our social media, our email campaign, and our text messaging campaign, along with an app. So what's good about now when you're spread out over as far as we are, you're able to really draw a radius around your store and just market to those people or market in other areas of somewhere where you're fairly close, where you think they'll be. So just the ability to pinpoint your marketing helps us a lot. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Shifting back to the culture shift that you instilled at Rise, it's incredible how vulnerable you were with your team and how you've been able to put team members into one of those four different buckets in order to set them up for success. I'm curious, there's 16 stores in seven different states. You can't be in so many different places at once. When you're not there having these incredible conversations, what are other ways you're able to instill that culture on a consistent basis? I don't really believe it. So it works so well to like write your values, although we have our values in the store or to write a document. We're going to be this way or to say, welcome to Moe's or something like that too. I think it starts with how you treat the people under you. So for instance, we have three corporate stores and 13 franchises. So our corporate stores, we manage. So when our managers have issues, I think this is the core of what it means. Whenever something's happening, somebody's coming in late or they're no showing, no calling or not doing some one of their tasks. That's a symptom. It's not the problem. It's a symptom of what the problem is. So if you treat that person in a way saying, hey, what's going on? What's going on with you? And help them kind of deal with that, whatever the true problem is that starts kind of a domino down, then there won't really be an asshole to someone underneath them either, right? So you're starting one that's built off of trust and respect and love, you know, figuring out what issues are going on in their life and not just being hardcore to, well, you're late. I got to write you up a second time or a third time. Let's dig a little deeper. Spend a little bit more time trying to get them. Anyways, when you do that to someone and they do it to the people under them, and your culture starts getting tighter like what we see, our profit starts going up. I don't really worry about customer service because I know if my employees are happy, they're going to give the type of customer service that we've taught them to give. And I see that going on. And then your ROI is going to go up and you make more money. And I share that with the franchisees to say, look, this is working. And it's working being like this. So, I mean, we pay a fair wage. All our employees make from... 15 to $21 an hour. Managers make over 75K, do paid days off. We do gym memberships. 
we'll start playing with all different kinds of things because our labor is dropped, our cost of labor is dropped, or we have a lot of money to reinvest into the employees. And since our we're only one shift a day from seven to two, everybody's home by three, and it's just a lot less to manage. We have eight employees in each store total. So we take better care. And part of that better care is to build a culture that's real, not fake. I mean, you see it everywhere right now. Every company, major company is having trouble with employees. It's hard. Disney, Apple, Amazon, everybody. But we're not. We're not at all. Amazing. And that's for being that way. On a scale of one to 10, in order to get repeat customers and keep people coming back, how important is the quality of the product and how important is customer service? Well, first to say, if you have a great environment for the employees to work in, they're going to take care of the product Mm. and they're going to take care of the customers. We don't have any cashiers, so we don't have any forward-facing employees. You order off a kiosk in our store, online, or through one of the third-party delivery companies. So where we used to give customer service was the cashier saying, hey, have a great day, taking the order. It really wasn't the most ideal place to do your customer service because they can put in the order wrong. They could be grumpy. There's all kinds of things. Once we went to the new way of doing it, all the customer service comes from the expediting person who's handling the food, bagging it, and handing it out or putting it in the food lockers. So about 70 to 80% of our orders are done on third-party delivery or are online where they just come in and go to the food locker and get their food and go. The rest is placed at a kiosk and we hand the food to them. So customer service for us is two things. It's the technology. Is that working as promised with times that are right? And then for the expediter handing the food to the person who's ordering the food and helping them in the store go through the kiosk motions that they need it. It's important. People want that. But people, honestly, these days, could really care less if they're talking to someone. They want to get their food and go. And that percentage is growing an awful lot. But people want it. But they do really care. If the technology is working as promised, did their order go in right? Was it complete? Was the speed of service good? Was it accurate? Was it easy to get? Was it understanding when they went to the store? So long-winded, I'm trying to say that there's an equal relationship for customer service between the technology and the employees. And we work really hard to care equally about both of those. So in our culture, which has traditionally been manager-employee or employee-employee relationships, We put a technology in there to be another person in there. Technology employee managers. How do they all get along? Do they all like each other? Does the technology work as promised? Does it make their life easier? Mm. Do employees know how to use the technology and how to fix problems? So once we started thinking of those as or technology as being an equal partner, our customer service went up quite a bit. That's amazing. Food's always been really important to us. I mean, we make the biscuits all day long from scratch. And all the ingredients we cook pretty much to order, unless it's really busy and we're getting ahead. We've always cared about that. That's kind of, in our culture, kind of a given. Every employee has the right not to serve something if it doesn't look right. So they're both equally important. But above them is employees. This might be proprietary information, but can you teach us the secret to making the perfect biscuit? Yeah. We only have five ingredients. We have self-rising flour eggs, buttermilk, and sugar in that biscuit. But the biggest thing is not to overmix it. That's the biggest key. 
when you start over mixing it, it gets hard. You're cutting that flour in, adding your buttermilk and your eggs, tossing it when it first comes together, putting it on a board, rolling it out, folding it over twice, rolling it out again. That's probably the most important thing, not over mixing. Yeah, you're making me hungry. So we're a community marketing podcast. I want to shift and talk a little bit about community marketing. What are different tactics, different ways that local rise stores engage with families, people that live in that few mile radius that you mentioned before of their stores? You mean as far as community givebacks that we do in that way or? In general, and in addition to the text messaging that you're rolling out and digital marketing, are there any other in-person or out-of-home marketing tactics that you deploy to make Rise continue their efforts and being part of the communities that they serve? Most things like from the beginning with Rise, all of our givebacks were pretty much focused around kids, kids in learning, kids in sport, whatever it was. It all was for kids. When we first opened a store, we partner up with a local school, give a percentage of our money there. We get reached out. Restaurants get reached out to so much to give stuff out. It's pretty hard to funnel all. So you have to kind of pick. We care about everybody, but who do we want to focus on? So in the early days and still now, a lot of that store marketing that they do is done for things with kids. But we're not as much of a kid's place as we were when we were donuts. We're more of the young mover and shaker type of person. So we still do stuff with kids local, but from a corporate side, we do stuff with mental health organizations. Mm. And whether that's NAMBI or it's been MAPS or it's been homeless causes, things that are helping people out there. And that's really from going through what I went through. I learned a lot about how we're really not taking care of people with issues similar, similar to what I'm at. So that emphasis has gone there from corporate but to kids and local. How are you able to measure the impact in your investment in supporting kids in the community and mental health initiatives in the communities that you serve? There's no measuring stick for this. For us, what we really want to do with mental health is take away the stigma and let people know what's being done at a cutting edge level that they may not understand. So for us, me telling my story, which I have, like I had issues. This is why I'm passionate about mental health. It's been kind of a more of an education from our name so much than to give back and a way to measure it. I don't know how to measure it, but I do know that many people have reached out to me and said, thank you for sharing that. It's opened it up for me to start talking about it now. Too. Yeah. That is an incredible way to measure it or a way to measure it that people are hearing what you're saying. It's, it's resonating with them. And you're inspiring so many people. So thank you. How vulnerable were you prior to going to rehab? I was, but I didn't talk about my deep secret. So the addiction part, I didn't really talk about. Yeah. So I wasn't so honestly vulnerable about it. Then I'm like, who cares now? <laughs> who cares? This? I can share it. Everybody's got something. And it's, it's obvious that everybody has something. Yeah. So... Not as much, but I was still open. I just wasn't showing the whole picture. What advice would you give to someone that is going through some mental health challenges right now, but 
they're an executive at a company. They're heading marketing at a company, because that's a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast, and they don't feel like they can take off work. What advice would you give to those people? Find a hobby. Find your hobby. Find your happy. I didn't realize how many people had hobbies until I got my own. But the people who have hobbies and they give it equal time, they seem to be the happiest. Yeah. And I would also say, find your life's purpose. Money doesn't satisfy that. I know I'm not alone. Say, well, I made a big bunch of money. It it didn't change. My life was the same the next day. Mm -hmm. It didn't fulfill me. Like seeing my employees move up through the ranks of our company, change their life financially so they can do other stuff that they want to. So run your company, not for money, but for something greater and find balance in your life with a hobby is a great way to do that. I love that. Does starting a podcast and talking to cool people like you, does that count as a hobby? No, no. I'm still tied to no. work. <laughs> you got to find one. Start your family. If you're a chef, it's not cooking. Preferably in nature, because we all need to spend some more time in nature. Couldn't agree more. Tom, this has been absolutely inspiring and incredible. The last section of the show is the lightning round. So I've got four questions, and we've got two minutes on the clock to answer the four questions. So the first thing that comes to mind for each of them. Hit me. First question, what is your favorite youth sports memory? Playing football at Pee Wee for a team called the Packers. It was a really rainy championship game, and I didn't really play much this year, but I was in my rain gear and my whole thing on the sideline and it was on TV and they were filming me with a no mud on me, just totally clean <laughs> on the sideline playing football. I love playing peewee football. Honestly. Love that. I did it from second grade on. Amazing. Second question. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Football player. <laughs> At one point, I didn't have a whole lot of aspirations on what to do. There was nothing that was there that I was shooting for. There's times I wanted to be a soldier because I was built to be that by toy guns and movies and everything that was out. And I ended up doing that. But I don't know that that was always my goal. But at some point it became. Nice. What is a brand whose marketing you admire most? Dutch Brothers Coffee. They're on the West Coast in seven or nine states. It's a quick service coffee place. It just drive through places. They brand through their employees too, just by the way they train them and the way they interact and the culture that they have spills out and everything else they do. And it's impossible to go there and not feel good about yourself when you leave. If you don't know them, learn more about them. They're an amazing story. They just recently went public and the owner's worth over a billion dollars now. And he earned it. He did it. It's amazing story. Amazing. And last question, Tom, what is your go-to cause to support? Mental health. I think that the whole nation's gone through a trauma over the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. We're divided, not of our own fault, but because of our media and our government dividing us on purpose. And a lot of people that are to the extreme left or the extreme right are so convinced that they're right, that everybody that looks at life differently from them is evil and their enemy and it's not the case if you take the time to understand the life 
situations or experiences that people have in these groups, this is what takes them to their side. Mm -hmm. You are a product of your experiences. You are not a product because you're a bad person. That's not the case of what's going on. So yeah, mental health needs, needs a lot of work. Amen. Tom, thank you so much for coming on. You have inspired me and I look forward to watching you continue to inspire the people you work with and so many other people in your life. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Good luck in everything. Good luck with your podcast. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Wingrid podcast and our episode today with Tom Ferguson. As a recap, we discussed his incredible journey from getting held back a year in the second grade to going on and founding and running a thriving restaurant chain in Rise Chicken and Biscuits, the power of vulnerability and being open and honest with your team, and how to instill a positive culture in your organization from the top down. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Evan Brandoff. See you next time. Play on, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating at leagueside.com slash podcast. For more educational and inspiring content, you can follow Leagueside on LinkedIn and Instagram at leagueside underscore. See you next time.